This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is March 3rd, 2022, and this is episode 279. I'm Strato Lindeboom. I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, BC and Canada continue to try to pressure Russia to stop being so mean and evil, and the federal conservative have the rules out for yet another leadership race. So we check back in on how that's going. Thank you to everyone who keeps this show going through your Patreon support. Join them at patreon.com slash politicoast, get in our Slack, and join the conversation. Let's start with the greatest BC Premier bracket. We are into the semifinals. Last week, we put up the greatest of the nonpartisans, Morda Cosmos, against the greatest New Democrat, Dave Barrett. I was not surprised at this result. It was 38-9 to 9 for Barrett. Turns out, going down in scandal and only governing for 18 months and accomplishing not much during that time was not enough to save the cosmos from the man, the legend, Dave Barrett. So we'll see him in the finals, which is what I predicted from the start. Similarly, in this round, we're looking at the greatest of the liberals, Boss Johnson, <laughs> versus the greatest of the Socreds and the conservatives, W.A.C. Bennett. You can go listen to our past episodes for more on both of these men. Boss Johnson led from 1947 to 52 and was the last liberal coalition premier before the Socred dynasty came in. On the other side of the barrel, we have W.A.C. Bennett, who governed the province for 20 years from 1952 to 1972. He actually won right after Johnson lost and the liberals would go to the dustbin of history for decades. Vote for whoever you think was the greater premier at Politico's pod on our Twitter account. And next week, we'll do the finals. We should do something special for that. But I have to figure out what. First up, let's talk about empty vodka bottles and other responses. Let's start here in BC. I'm interested in talking about Ukraine, but we obviously, but I don't think either of us have particular insights or value adds to the you know, waves of information that are coming out to try to explain the situation across the Atlantic. Like we could say shelling nuclear power plants is bad, but usually, yeah, it, it's the the situation's evolving so fast, and we're far enough away that yeah, it's we're probably not the people to be providing you know minute by minute insight into what's going on there. But we can talk about what our own jurisdictions are doing, and I'm thinking we can start here in British Columbia, where We've seen, I think, three major thrusts by the government and public sector to really respond. The first kind of followed Ontario and a couple other provinces who announced, we're going to pull Russian vodkas and products from our liquor store shelves, and that'll help. And BC was initially like, we don't need to do that. And then Kevin Falcon, BC Liberal leader, actually called for it. And suddenly it happened. I'm not saying he triggered it to happen. They were probably thinking about it when they saw the other provinces, but it was 
I think the the premier or someone from the the government had set had downplayed the the likeliness that they were going to follow Ontario's lead on this earlier that morning, and by the afternoon things has changed. <laughs> to, to me, this is just emblematic of I think where the popular passions are, where it is very hard to be too critical or too anti-Russia in pretty much any action you can do, at least as far as the public's concerned. And everyone seems to be trying to find new avenues to punish Russia further. Yeah, the liquor one... Kind of understandable. Yeah, the liquor one was uh, weird. I get it. It plays into stereotypes of Russian vodka, but it turns out that that. there aren't many Russian vodkas on our shelves. Yeah. Well, not only that, we don't actually import a huge amount from Russia. I think it's something like there's a billion dollars worth of goods, I think, get imported from Russia, and we export like 400 million or something. Not a huge amount of trade, all things considered, and one of the biggest imports is stuff like raw materials and oil and and that sort of stuff. And when I go to the gas pump, I can't, you know, select country of origin for the gas I pump, but I can, in a liquor store, decide which country's booze I want to buy. So I, I get it in that respect. I think a lot of people were confused because it turns out actually most of the vodka on our shelves is brewed in or distilled in Latvia uh, and other European countries. BC Liquor Store's website actually only had six vodkas, four of which are different sizes of Russian standard, and the Balitika 7 beer, which I have never heard of, and I'm sure it was not that easy to find even in the liquor stores. So, really, it's three product lines were pulled. It's symbolic. It's not quite Freedom Fries level, like, meaningless stuff. There is the thing in Quebec where poutine places are changing the name of their fries which i i mean personally i find it a slightly amusing that uh putin when spelled in french is written like the the gravy and french fries dish i i would have kept it but yeah i'm not a Quebec poutinery i i will push back a little on the freedom fries analogy just because i i have seen it so much this week on all of the these different or in response to all of these different moves. And freedom fries were particularly ridiculous because it was the case of France just not joining a questionable war, whereas this is much more of a response to Russia starting a clearly illegal and aggressive war. Yeah, freedom fries is more akin to the restaurants changing Moscow mules to whatever they've renamed them. I think I saw one go American mules, maybe European mules, or... Like, the obvious thing would be to call it a Kiev mule. Mule. A Kiev yeah. mule, but... I, I think my point is more that it was just absurd to pick on France, whereas... Yeah, for sure. Know, Russia, there's clearly a reason to dislike them in the current moment. There have been a couple more substantive, arguably, moves by the British Columbia government. I think in the back of my mind, I'm always thinking foreign policy is not really the realm of the provincial government, aside from certain like trade disputes around softwood lumber. There's a value in BC being at that table, but like the provinces shouldn't really be guiding our military foreign policy. 
but the provincial government was asked about our investment management corporation. And this is a public sector pension fund and whether they had divested all their Russian assets. And this is, I think, driven by moves in Alberta to get AIMCO to pull their funds from Russian assets. And there's a long controversy, historical controversy with AIMCO and government interference. Basically, governments shouldn't mess with pension funds because those are the money of the workers. It doesn't belong to the government. And it, you don't want political decisions really guiding investment strategies. Now, the workers themselves were also calling for this divestment. So, BCI announced that they are working to sell the remaining Russian securities. And they didn't actually have that many to begin with as a portion of their total um, portfolio. So, those are being divested. And finally... Well, as quickly as they can, it's a little hard to divest from Russia at the moment just because the, the sanctions we have that all the countries have thrown on have just actually made it hard to sell any assets still held. Also, who's buying them? Uh, like, Yeah, but that's part of the problem. Part of the problem is you can't really trade anything from dollars to rubles. The Russian stock market has been closed all week because they're terrified of what will happen when it opens after the ruble crashed 30% and they can't transact with most financial institutions. <clears throat> and finally, probably the most novel approach BC can take is to use our fairly new landowner transparency registry, which allows the government to look at who owns all the property in this province, including like the names behind the corporate numbers on there and see if there's anything tied to the billionaires and the people targeted by sanctions to take their assets. And so, this was an interesting thing to come up, but then after some initial searches, it seems like there's nothing particularly useful in there. Now, there's a really big caveat that the database only contains all the properties purchased from 2019 and beyond, and those purchased prior to that are not required to be registered until November of this year because of delays and complexities in getting all of the titles updated and getting everyone to do the paperwork required. So, there might be assets in BC, but so far, no individuals have been identified. It was a good idea. Yeah, it's worth checking. What are we doing federally, Scott? We're sending more weapons. <clears throat> yeah. Earlier this week, the federal government announced they were shipping, if it was 100 uh, Carl Gustav recoilless rifles and 2,000 rounds of ammunition for that. That got followed up today with an additional 4,500 M72 rocket launchers, 7,500 hand grenades, money to buy commercial satellite images to support the Ukrainians, as well as other items such as fragmentation vests, IMPs, the, the military rations, as well as we're going to be using two of our Hercules aircraft to, to transport this stuff over to Europe. This is all good. I think we would it would have probably been better to help the Ukrainians earlier in this before the, the taint started rolling across the border, but uh, 
nevertheless, it's they could use all the help they can get on this, and it's good Canada shipping this stuff over. One slight challenge is we don't have a huge amount of anti-tank missiles that are actually good against the newer and better tanks out there, which does somewhat limit our ability to support the Ukrainians with uh, lethal aid in this case. Though these weapons are quite useful against the less heavily armored vehicles, such as those making up the uh, uh, armored personnel carriers, supply vehicles and such, and considering the Russians seem to be having a hell of a time doing basic logistics, giving the Ukrainians more ability to strike at their support columns has a fair bit of benefit. I'm always a bit skeptical of providing weapons to foreign nations, insurgent armies, even where it seems the most just, like in this case, it seems pretty just, as our as the history of it doesn't always bear out positively in terms of how tides shift over the long term. It can be a very good short-term strategy of who has the weapons five years from now question, but it's done. I was more curious and interested to see the other half of the announcement that came today from Immigration Minister Sean Fraser, where they said Canada is prepared to welcome, quote, an unlimited number of Ukrainians fleeing the war. One of the big criticisms that we didn't get to last week and that the NDP and the Conservatives actually picked up on it too, was we talked a lot of talk about welcoming Ukrainians to Canada, but the walk wasn't there. It was still like, oh yeah, we'll be there for them. We're providing money and military aid, but there wasn't any clear effort to do much on the immigration and the refugee crisis that this is creating. We have a bit of that now. So previously, there were some like expedited visa paths. Those have been ramped up to 11. Now, the opposition was calling for visa requirements to be dropped entirely for Ukrainians. The government says that would take months to sort out because of logistical problems and our border has been made so secure and sticky that you can't just let people in. So instead, there will be a shortened period where people are an expedited path where people simply have to give their biometrics and go through a basic background screening. That doesn't necessarily seem all that uh, plausible to me as the case on that. So they say it's going to take 12 to 14 weeks to mess around with the the IT systems that handle this sort of stuff and change how the airlines do it. But fundamentally, it's not like there's this automate made a gate or something that just closes anyone off without any human intervention in this if the people at the airports who do the customs and immigration checks when people come in just let people through even if they don't have a visa there there's nothing to stop that fraser's which, other argument is maybe what, a little more plausible of why the government is hesitant here he says they're worried about Russian collaborators possibly, quote, slipping through the cracks, including people aligned with Russia who've attacked Ukrainian forces in the breakaway regions. That's that's more plausible. I guess the sure. question is, if they get to Canada, are we worried they're going to do something here? Like, we're, But we'd still be screening 
all people who get onto airplanes for weapons, etc. Yeah, and and you can always get collect all the information at the time and process it after they're here in the country. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing that if there's concerns about, you can still get people out of there. You can still get them in the country. You don't necessarily have to front load the processing of this stuff. If it turns out, yeah, we collect all this information, someone gets flayed later, well, get the RCMP to go and bring them in for further screening if you need to after that. But it, it just doesn't make a huge amount of sense to me that we would let things like IT issues slow us down on this. And if it takes 14 weeks to change whether or not one country needs a people from one country need a visa when coming to Canada. That's a sign that something is pretty broken with how the government works, and there's a lack of some pretty basic state capacity to resolve some fairly minor issues in the grand scheme of things. To get into a little bit of the details of this program as it exists, Ukrainians who come under this expedited Ukraine authorization for emergency travel program will be able to come and live, work, or study here for up to two years. It'll be an open work and study permit so they can go wherever they want and employers can hire as many Ukrainians as they want. There will be, I believe, an expedited process to apply for permanent residency for them as well. And there's going to be an expedited path for permanent residency for any Ukrainians who already have family in Canada. And so this is a way for people who know someone in Canada to at least sponsor and get faster settlement. So it's it's not the worst program. It is very promising. I'm glad to see this, but we're both hoping for a little bit more. It also there is that double standard that I think always needs to be pointed out that we can do this for this crisis. There have been so many refugee and war crises around the world that are even ongoing including in Syria right now where why can't we offer the same level of support to those and to those yeah, people? Yeah, like it's worth, yeah, like just six months, a little over, six or seven months ago, yeah, we had a giant failure with su- supporting the refugees coming out of Afghanistan as the the, t- the country fell to the Taliban. And th- that should never have been the case. We, we clearly need to do a lot more in a lot more circumstances. And if that means having to uh, overhaul how things go in the background of our visa processing systems and everything, then we should get to work uh, on giving that a complete overhaul because we're letting dumb stuff get in the way of doing the right thing and supporting uh, refugees and displaced people. Yeah, and... Trudeau promised, we didn't cover this, but he promised a couple of weeks ago, new immigration targets of 425,000 a year, like record-setting immigration targets, which I think we're both strongly in favor of. Yep, well, I am. But to achieve those, it's nicer to make the process easier than to continue to have these kind of barriers or to just focus on the sort of, quote-unquote, skilled worker programs. I'm in the middle of reading Harsha Walia's uh, Border and Rule book still. And I just finished the chapter on Canadian Canada's temporary foreign worker program. And so I'm just like angry at immigration issues all around. But let's talk about other things Canada's doing around this crisis. 
there were reports earlier in the week or late last week that the federal heritage minister was starting to pressure or have talks with the major media networks to do something about RT, formerly Russia Today, the TV channel owned by the Russian government. And since then, Rogers, Bell, and Shaw have all voluntarily decided to stop carrying the channel. Good. I'm happy that's coming off our yeah, way. I don't have strong opinions about the companies making the decision. It's I do have a bit of hesitation about the government pressuring or pushing media companies to make these kinds of decisions. There's a free speech, you know, free expression kind of issue get that gets raised. This is like the government saying what you can and can't watch or see. RT is not yeah, the cleanest like or most reputable I, I think place. A, a hostile government propaganda arm all being able to regulate that off of our airways almost certainly falls under the the reasonable limits clause i'm willing to to carve this category out as something that yeah we, we can get off our airways and we shouldn't worry too much about the free expression aspect of it because yeah this is uncontroversially just a clear part of the the russian state's efforts to insert their narratives into how the discussion goes and often in ways that are harmful to Canada and Canada's interests. And yeah, it's entirely reasonable to to take steps to combat that. And finally, Charlie Angus put forward a motion, I guess, today that I just noticed before we started to record that was adopted unanimously to call on the city of Ottawa to rename a portion of the street in front of the Russian embassy in honor of Volodymyr Zelensky to troll them. So we've seen a lot of responses by a lot of different organizations, some governments, a lot of kind of private sector or nonprofit, et cetera, responses to everything of definitely symbolic value of and often dubious actual value. This sometimes yeah, actively harmful. Uh, this one, yeah. The there was suggestions in the US The Paleontology Journal that was gonna stop translating its abstracts yeah, into Russian. There's a US congressman that suggested kicking out Russian students at American universities, which is just dumb. Also not great when you look at the historical precedents, huh? When you start doing things like that. Also, like Russia is apparently looking like they're maybe closing their borders to try and keep their own citizens from fleeing. And like the last thing we'd want to do is help them on that. It, it it's a yeah, it, it's a mess. It, that's dumb. This one though, I, I have to say, like no the kind of general symbolic stuff i'm generally not a huge fan of but this one is just so amazingly petty i, I have to respect it i find it amusing funny weird that this is like the rare time we've seen the federal government call on a municipal government to do something 90 percent of the time i swear it's the symbolic motions passed by the city of vancouver to tell the federal government to stop investing in nuclear or something like that this is the highest legislature in Canada calling on a city to do a thing. And maybe they will. But I feel like they are probably preoccupied with cleaning up the mess still in Ottawa. So, as we said, things are evolving fast. That's the state of what we've seen shifting. It really does feel like everyone is in politics is trying to somehow find the Ukraine angle on 
whatever issue they're trying to take up. Conservatives are really big on, we need to push forward pipelines because if coastal gas link doesn't get built, there won't be LNG to supply Europe. And it's like that ignores a lot of geography. Or Jason Kenney is really big on getting pipelines built and saying we need to get that oil and gas to Europe to help them get off of Russian oil and gas. And there are alternates. There are other choices here, people. Like Germany not shutting down its nuclear plants, which they decided to do, yeah, I believe. But so, the last batch of reactors were going to be shut off this year, going to be decommissioned. I believe they're re- looking at revisiting that, but no decisions have been made at this point. It, that was a huge strategic blunder on their case to to cut their nuclear program rather than uh, get rid of coal. And also made them much more dependent on Russian gas, which clearly the situation in Germany has shifted enough politically that's undergoing a, a pretty serious reevaluation. But they put themselves in a really bad spot over the past 20 years, and particularly the last 10 years, when it came to that. The other interesting thing here is that I believe it was the Globe and Mail reported that Krista Freeland's been a, a big part of getting the the international sanctions in place. It's basically been working the phones nonstop, get the, the swift cutoff done, as well as a few of the other kind of big financial sanctions in there, which is certainly in, an interesting sign of where Canada and particularly Freeland is with, with respect to this. She also had that task of going out there and reminding Canadians that these sanctions will hurt you. Like, sanctions are a two-way street. They're not always equally uh, painful. And in this case, so many people are hitting Russia that they're obviously going to suffer far more than any other country. But we're seeing potentially the effects on the price on at the pumps even for what these disruptions mean. That doesn't mean it's not worth it, obviously, but it's just just a reminder, folks, that when we affect the trade coming from another country, it can affect the prices you have to pay. It's nice to see a politician be honest about that, at least. Well, moving on to our next segment, yet another conservative leadership race begins. So this is now our third Conservative Party of Canada leadership race we'll have uh, covered during the podcast run. Because <sighs> once again, they are looking for a new leader. This week, <clears throat> it's like, can you believe that Aaron O'Toole's only been out of a job for uh, <clears throat> a couple weeks now? It, it feels like it's been forever. That's how quickly the last couple weeks have moved in with everything else going on. Time has no meaning for me. I have an infant. And I have not slept. Well, I've slept a bit. My wife has not slept. (laughs) Yeah. So, the rules aren't fully out, but the Leadership Organizing Committee of the Conservative Party of Canada has teased a couple of the main uh, headlines of the rules. The new leader of the Conservative Party and the opposition will be announced on September 10th. So, not the fastest leadership race that some were hoping for, but at least it's not a protracted two-year-long endeavor, like when they chose Aaron O'Toole. Stays within a single calendar year, which is a rarity on these. 
The interesting thing is, though, that the membership cutoff will be on June 3rd. So, it's actually pretty tight for anyone hoping to jump in and raise their profile to get a lot of members signed up. Then you have all summer to convince those who are signed up to vote for you or put you second. Otherwise, a lot of the rules sound like they'll be the same as previous races. The entry fee is $200,000. The deposit is $100,000, both the same as the previous race from 2020. And we'll find out the other rules like signatures and what forth later this week, including they still have to announce where the convention will be. Although I think that's a little less important in the era of COVID. I'm glad they've shortened it down a bit. Still maybe a little longer than I would like, but yeah, these nine month or lo- or the 2017 one, how long did that last? It was like 14 months or something stupid. Anyway, these very long leadership races, I, I don't think surf parties, they, they tend to divert focus away from the actual goings on with respect to, to most of the federal politics and their role as opposition it opens up a bunch of wounds within the party and kind of highlights all the major disagreements sometimes, or it just ends up trying to paper over them in a way that doesn't end up resolving any of the big kind of conflicts within the party or, or big questions. Like I the, the last PC liberal leadership race and arguably the conservative one before this have both kind of done that where the parties needed to have big conversations and actually take a decision about their future. And that was just not part of any campaign's wish on that. It just ended up not getting talked about despite all the length of time. And yeah, it ultimately I think just ends up being a, a resource drain takes the, the focus off of where it should be. And honestly, I think parties are weaker for it. So good that it's at least trending down in the right direction for leadership race lengths. I know Peter Polyev was hoping for a really short, not officially a coronation, but the shorter the better was his view. Yeah, so I think. they'd want to have it done. Like, get it done by the spring. Canada Day was the date I'd heard they'd been pushing for. And he didn't get that, but I think the membership cutoff does benefit him somewhat. That's a couple months for your Tasha Carradins to try to get a profile out there to get enough members because remember this will be the same kind of point system as the previous races where they need votes in every constituency in Canada to win and so people whose prominence is primarily Ontario or primarily Quebec are going to struggle to really do well in this race if they can't get their name out there in the next couple months and so with that we can talk about who is in or looking like they're going to be in the race. Pierre Polyev obviously has a machine, has some of the support of the populist wing of the party. We've talked about him in the past. Jean Charest is becoming quickly the like, he's in and I thought it was a joke at first, but now it seems inevitable. That does seem to be the case. There have been a lot of media stories in the past couple of weeks about his potential run and I don't think that is all just intrepid reporters going out there trying to find a, a quote or two to base a piece around it there does seem to be an attempt to generate buzz for him which presages a, a formal announcement to, to run I'm pretty lukewarm on the prospect of him running I, I think 
someone from more kind of the PC wing of the party would be good, but he has also been out of federal politics for a long time and has a lot of baggage from his time as Quebec Premier. And there was a story this week regarding the some report related to the one of the corruption inquiries that dates back to his time as Premier of Quebec. And those, those just aren't headlines you want to see when you're trying to run for the top of a federal party. And he's clearly riled up the right wing of the Conservative Party. MP Shannon Stubbs from Lakeland was tweeting out a graphic trying to compare him to Trudeau. Yeah, I think I saw Jenny Byrne also put saying, out the same graphic. Like, it seems to be a coordinated thing. Well, Byrne is working yeah. for Polyev, right? Yeah, and Stubbs is saying he's about carbon taxes, a long gun registry, and hiking sales taxes and hiking taxes. And that's things we shouldn't have in a conservative party. So might get ugly there. Yeah. His, uh, the surprising number of like moderates throwing. Yeah. Their and also, forward. uh, the other kind of big line of attack I, I've seen, which I, I think will definitely hurt him was the work he did for, uh, Huawei after leaving government. That That's going to be something that, uh, will no doubt feature in the attacks. And I, I think a lot of people after the two years that the Michaels were held, see that as potentially disqualifying. So he's going to have an uphill battle with a lot of that stuff. The most wild thing to me though, is just like he was technically deputy prime minister of Canada in 1993. And then he was premier from 2003 to 2012, but he's also only still only 63. Like, he feels so old and from such a bygone era of politics in this country. But he's like, he's not a young spring chicken by any means, but I had just in my mind ruled him out by just like, he's from, it's like we wouldn't see Kretchen run again or any of those people. So, anyway, that's Sean Charest. Patrick Brown is also being thrown around, and I guess we're just not talking about why he's not Premier of Ontario. Yeah, so he's rebuilt his political career after the uh, scandal and being unceremoniously dumped as a PC leader in Ontario mere months before the election. He's currently mayor of Brampton. or Brampton, And yeah. I don't know, I haven't followed him since that, but yeah, apparently he's undergone a bit of a reputational makeover. I still think that's going to come back to bite him if he actually does a run or B actually win and go toe to toe with Trudeau in the next election. Yeah, Trudeau wore blackface more times than he can remember. So Patrick Brown and the harassment allegations against him, maybe those will just roll off him similarly. What gross politics that would be. I hate it. Peter McKay is also still thinking about running, even though he hasn't cleared his campaign debt from the last time. I think he has the best case to make out of the three moderates we've talked about now, since he did come rather close in the last round. But the Conservative Party, like we've said before, does seem to have moved on from that place. Leslin Lewis is also allegedly putting 
together team and that wouldn't be surprising given how strong her play was in the last round even though she came from nowhere seemingly like she wasn't elected now she is an mp so she'll have a strong team in theory if and when she launches but let's talk about tasha Carradin. do you know yeah i've, I've like, periodically I've been seen her name her, come up her pieces in the post uh, over the past 10 years or so pretty generic center-right writer I, I despite having read a lot of her work over the years i admittedly a little hard pressed to off the top of my head really take out what or describe exactly what her positions are on a lot of the stuff beyond kind of like i said generic center i i just don't see the case for her i'm her name got floated a few weeks back when it looked like there wasn't necessarily going to be anyone else, and it was just going to be a Pierre Polyev coronation. I know she might make a decent leader, but I have a trouble seeing the path forward or how she distinguishes herself on that. It's really hard to go from no political experience to leader of the official opposition of Canada, I think. Like... Sheree's not an MP, but he's had it before. Well, Brian Mulroney uh, did that, I believe. Everyone else so. we've talked about. It, there is, it's not without precedent. It's, and it's, yeah, Patrick Brown's never f- served federally, but he's had provincial politics experience. So it would be an unconventional choice, but maybe she could make it in. I'm surprised Michael Chong is being floated around again, and he's saying he hasn't ruled it out. We've both talked positively about Chong in the past, but I just got to feel like if I'm Michael Chong, I would take the hint. They're, they're not that into you. Yeah, he, he finished, I think, a respectable, was it fourth? Maybe fifth? Last, uh, not last time, time before last. Time was too many of these. Like he, he staked out a decent chunk of the, the party, but also very much a minority on that. And in 2017, there was a, I could see a, a path to victory for him. It, it was a difficult one. The The odds were not necessarily in his favor, but the, there was a, a way he could have won that if everything aligned. I have a lot of trouble seeing how this version of the Conservative Party would elect him leader. But good luck if you do run yeah, Chong like, and try to pitch the carbon well, I think tax he, once I think he'd have to drop, drop the carbon tax thing. That's the only way you can do it. He he gets. I mean, he's a good MP for the Conservatives, right? He his speeches recently around the Emergencies Act got featured. Like he he is an asset for the Conservatives, but I think he's one of those people who's just got to be aiming for a cabinet role if the Conservatives form government and maybe build a profile and strength within the party from there. But I don't know that the situation is different enough. To be more positive for him. Yeah, it's too bad. I I, I like him quite a bit, but yeah, I, I have a hard time seeing how he he wins the leadership race. He probably has a better chance than Scott Aitchison, than Scott Aitchison, though. Who, the guy who said he's preparing a part a bid for leadership today, apparently, who is actually an MP, a two-term MP. He was elected in twenty nineteen. Yeah, so he's from in Perry Sound, Muskoka. He is the replacement for Tony Clement. Okay, I 
We know literally yeah, nothing I, about this I guy. I don't know a no huge amount does. about him either. I, I don't really have a take on it other than, yeah, good luck. Good luck. Bring some glory back to your riding that is still the butt of a bunch of jokes about gazebos. So we'll see if any other names pop up. I'm sure some will. This is shaping up to be a large leadership race if all of these people do end Not up throwing in. But hopefully the entry fee and maybe a signature requirement will Rem- cut some Yeah, the, the last leadership race had four people on the ballot. But at this point in that cycle, we were talking about John Charay and a whole bunch of others who, who didn't end up running in that one. And, and I think we'll see something similar here. Moving on to quick takes, let's start with the best story of BC politics, recent history, the trial of Craig James and the saga of the wood splitter is coming to the end potentially, unless there are appeals, as the defense has made their closing arguments in the Supreme Court case. I bring this to your attention, dear listeners, not because we have a lot of hot takes on how the arguments have gone. We didn't follow it that closely, actually. But I want to highlight some of the defense arguments uh, in favor of the wood splitter that we all know and love. The defense counsel argues that this was actually signed off by three people. And so it wasn't just a matter of Craig James willfully misspending public funds, but in fact, the speaker, one Daryl Plekis, was the top of the pyramid who had to sign off on this. And we may have addressed this when we were talking about the scandals oh so many years ago. And I think Plekis's argument was that he was new at the job and felt like he had to sign off on everything. Um, but it does undermine his case that these are just fully the actions of James and or the former sergeant at arms. Yeah. Although I'm sure the, the third person was. I'm sure the prosecutor could make an argument that, okay, even if the speaker signed off, the, the fact that you absconded with it to your private residence for a while maybe means you weren't entirely truthful with the final signed in authority on its intent. Ah, but the defense counsel has an answer to that. They say that the idea to buy the wood splitter and the trailer came from former legislature manager Randy Spraggett, who suggested they buy it, but there was no parking spot available, and that forced them to store it at James's home, as there were a number of problems with leaving it at the legislature. For example, the lawn would be too soggy during rainy weather, and a space could be created through rush rock, crushed rock, but that would be too close to the street and could be used as a garbage receptacle for the public. I guess my other favorite part is that they discuss where did this idea come from? Why do we need a wood splitter? And it came about after news story of large areas of Puerto Rico being without power for several weeks. And there was a belief that you would need equipment to cut wood, rebar, and concrete, and to rescue trapped people. So, in this scenario, we just have to picture it, right? The capital of British Columbia has been besieged by weather phenomena, maybe another atmospheric river. Power is out. The premier is trapped in his office, and the only way to save him is for the legislature to employ its wood splitter to start breaking logs. Now, this 
doesn't make a huge amount of For sense. For anyone to who's me. seen the picture of it, <laughs> like that, that wood split because you have to cut the things yeah, out first. That you can't exactly roll that wood splitter up to a bunch of collapsed concrete and start cutting through it with that thing. That's not how any of this stuff works. If you haven't seen a picture of the wood splitter is designed like you cut down a tree, you cut the tree into smaller pieces, then you put those pieces of wood onto it and it splits it into firewood. So it takes a like a stump or a log and it can break it into smaller pieces. It's not helpful to tear down a broken building. Yeah, there's and there are- in this scenario where in this scenario where the capital is besieged, I'm pretty sure the military and other levels of government can help in many different ways and the legislature doesn't need to own the yeah, thing. There are tools meant to cut concrete and this is not one of them. I give council uh, credit for creativity though and I'm very curious to see how this case turns out once we have the verdict. So, we'll keep following that. Oh, something else that uh, happened in the Capitol this week. There's a small cabinet shuffle. I I immediately had to slip my mind and was thankfully reminded of it before I recorded it. But yeah, the new ministry we talked about last week, the Land, Water, and Resource Stewardship Ministry, or as it will be known by its acronym, Land Wars, has its first minister. Uh, That would be Josie Osborne, who is moving from municipal affairs. And Nathan Cullen is uh, taking over that portfolio. I don't think it can qualify as a shuffle until you have three people move. But yes, it is one of the very rare changes in cabinet that we've seen under the Horgan government. I think the last time was after the election. And the time before that might have been the election before that or by election. So it's only when like absolutely necessary. Josie Osborne was pretty widely respected in municipal affairs. And her background is actually in resource stewardship and biology. So she does seem pretty suited for this. And she was also the mayor of Tofino. Morgan so says it was her dream to put her there. Yeah, she was also the mayor of Tofino, so she covered off yeah, municipal oh. affairs with some experience as well. Cullen's an interesting choice for municipal affairs. He's in a northern BC riding, and there aren't many large cities in his riding. And I think a lot of people were expecting him to get land wars, except he didn't get a portfolio right away after some scandals during his run in the election. But he's done his time in the doghouse and here he gets to be municipal affairs minister, which to be fair is a portfolio that you probably need to be pretty diplomatic at to handle all of these angry cities and all the new angry mayors they're probably going to have after David Eby's legislation drops on them whenever we get that. And Cullen does have some background or like his time in federal NDP circles was widely respected as a consensus builder. Maybe he'll do well there. Remains to be seen. All right. Finally, the Electorals Boundary Commission of British Columbia is doing its consultations on what we should name our ridings, how we should redraw the maps, and how we should expand them. As the government has said, we are getting several new seats. So, if you have opinions about this, we will put the link to the survey in the show notes, and you can say, that this street is in my riding, but that one isn't. Tell them how they should gerrymander it. Thankfully, it's fully independent from the government and from partisan politics in this country, and we don't get gerrymandering. But this is your chance to have your say in how the map should be drawn in the system that we have. 
Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'll ask them to move the boundary of Vancouver Mount Pleasant a couple blocks east so I can be in a, a riding that is less of a one-party state. Unfortunately, they don't have control over the boundaries of Coquitlam, which is the dumbest drawn city. But there's no rule that says you that have ever to lived follow in. a uh, municipal boundary. Municip- but it is general no, practice. No, and the ridings I don't think do. But anyway, I hate that I can walk two blocks and I'm suddenly in a different city and then I walk another two blocks and I'm back in my city. So it makes no sense. Just cut Port Coquitlam off at low heat. <laughs> Controversial take. Well, we'll as long as we're redoing this, I would like to see West Vancouver be renamed Northwest Vancouver to more accurately describe its geographic location. But hey, that's a job for our new minister of uh, municipal affairs to, to take a look at because Man, Vancouver, there are too many Vancouver's in places that and Wests, whatever, West End, West Side, West Vancouver that have no real geographic relation to each other. Someone should clean that up. That's my, my hot take for the, the day on this one. I'm still working my way through Alex's census game, the name every community you can in every province. I'm up to 93% in British Columbia as I, at this, like I got into the mid 80s without any effort or looking around and I'm in the high 80s in Alberta. And now I'm at the point where anytime I see a name of a town mentioned that's in Canada, I just enter it as, oh yeah, that place exists. And I'm still missing a bunch. I don't have, I'm still below 50% in like Quebec and East, except for Nova Scotia. So I'm ashamed of that. Everywhere else I'm doing pretty well, other than Nunavut. I don't know anywhere in Nunavut other than the capital. So we're off topic now. I think the show's over. Talk to you next week. Have a good night. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playtoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Wash your hands and stay home. Thanks for listening.